As a content warning for today, there will be some mentions of murder, suicide, sexual assault, and domestic assault. If these topics are a little too much for you to hear about today, feel free to skip this one and we'll see you in the next one. As the NFL has grown in its over 100 year existence, it has sparked countless moments of joy, sorrow, and frustration for its fans. But while football is a beloved sport in the United States, the NFL has caused and faced quite a few scandals in its time. The link between football and CTE, a traumatic brain disease, has been well-documented and has led many people to question the NFL's protection of its players' health and the safety of football in general. The NFL has also been accused multiple times of having racist protocols and practices and allowing for a culture of violence against women among their players. So what is the real story of America's favorite game? Hello and welcome to another episode of The Corporate Casket. I'm the Illuminati and today we will be talking about one of the most famous organizations in the United States, the NFL. The NFL is a huge organization that has multiple scandals and aspects to it. So it would be impossible to cover in just one episode. So just be aware that some things may not be covered today, but they will be covered in a future episode. With all of that being said, let's get started. Before the NFL became one of the most profitable organizations in sports history and the beloved tradition for people throughout the world on Sundays, Mondays, and Thursdays, it started from humble beginnings. On September 17, 1920, 14 men gathered at a dealership to discuss developing a new professional football league. Although professional football already existed, team owners of the independent professional teams were quickly losing money and pro football was outrageously overshadowed by the popularity of college football. A deal between 11 professional teams was developed to officially form a confederation, known at the time as the American Professional Football Association. The newly formed league chose Jim Thorpe as the first president, who the Milwaukee Journal has called the world's greatest athlete. According to history.com, this decision to elect Thorpe as president garnered more ink in newspapers around the country than the formation of the APFA itself. The league and the game at the time were completely different than what we know today. Coaches couldn't coach on the sideline, forward passes were rare, and players would play both offense and defense. I bet they were tired. The teams scheduled their own opponents and there were no established number of games played. There were barely any fans in attendance and the press didn't seem to care much about the newly developed league. Also missing was the Super Bowl, which today is one of the most watched events of the year in the United States. For the first few years, the new league was abysmal in relation to college football, which drew crowds as big as 100,000 people. In 1922, the AFPA changed their name to the National Football League. And finally, in 1925, they caught their big break within the signing of Red Grange, a college favorite. This led to the league's expansion and fans of college football began to finally pay attention. In 1934, the NFL instituted a waiver system that allowed teams to gain available players after the co-owner of the Eagles said his team was at a disadvantage with fewer resources than other teams. He suggested that the NFL hold a player draft and the league unanimously agreed with him. And so the draft was worn in 1936. Unlike the draft of today, the league did not have scouting departments, agents, and there was certainly no media coverage. And there was also no massive concert type atmosphere to it either. Instead, the list of players was shown on newspaper reports and players were recommended by the front office. Only 24 players of the 81 chosen in the first draft ended up playing in the NFL. The rest chose professions that quote, paid better. 
That's crazy to think about in comparison to the multi-million dollar contracts players can receive now. Now, there was something else that was different about the league at this point. They weren't allowing black players to play. Despite having black athletes at the beginning of the league, the NFL later banned black players from 1934 to 1946 in a quote, gentleman's agreement. It took until 1946 for the league to reintegrate only one year before Jackie Robinson integrated the MLB. The reintegration of the NFL was initiated by force when Los Angeles threatened to evict the Rams unless they signed a black player. This gave way to Kenny Washington and Woody Strode joining the team. And then a few months later, Bill Willis and Marion Motley joined the NFL with the Cleveland Browns. Around the same time, the NFL was being broadcast on television, but not by any national networks and was still a relatively unknown league. But that all changed a few years later. In 1966, the NFL merged with the American Football League. While the first Super Bowl between the two leagues took place in 1966, it wasn't until 1970 that they joined their operations and regular season schedules. The merger between the NFL and the AFL came with a wide range of access to television that the NFL had not had before. Their deal with ABC allowed for professional football to be televised into homes of millions of people. The first televised Super Bowl took place in 1966, but at the time it was simply called the AFL-NFL Championship. By the 1970s, the league had become a household name for millions of people in the United States. They had debuted Monday Night Football and the big network contracts broadcasting the games promoted a wide reach for the young league. In a poll conducted by Gallup in 1972, they found that football had become America's favorite sport, surpassing baseball, which had held the position for an extremely long time. George Gallup said, "'Interest in football has no doubt been affected by the steadily increasing coverage the sport has received from major television networks. The popularity of the NFL has definitely risen over its 100-year existence. Today, it's pretty common to go out grocery shopping and see people wearing their favorite players' jerseys or advertisements for the big game coming up. The NFL even started playing games in London every once in a while to try to expand their international reach. Additionally, the highest performing players now make millions of dollars a year, and most NFL franchises are worth billions of dollars. Despite football's massive popularity, the league has seen its fair share of controversy. And I'm not just talking about Deflategate when Tom Brady and the Patriots were accused of deflating balls during the playoffs and Super Bowl. And I'm also not talking about Bountygate, where the New Orleans Saints were found to be putting bounties on players of the other team and rewarding the Saints players if they injured them. The league has been repeatedly criticized by fans, researchers, and the public for the prevalence of the handling of violence against women, the protection and health of their players, and racism. And before we jump into all of these more serious topics, I'm gonna go ahead and place our sponsor for today's episodes here. So if you continue on after the episodes, just know that we are gonna get into the nitty gritty and some of the more darker sides of the NFL. With that being said, here are today's sponsors. It's that time of winter where everything is so damn cold. And all I wanna do personally is sit inside, do my work, cuddle up, stay cozy, and uh, not go outside. And that includes eating delicious, tasty food. Thankfully, I have HelloFresh, so I don't have to worry about that. And you've heard me go on and on about HelloFresh before because HelloFresh sends fresh pre-measured ingredients right to your door along with easy to follow recipes. And I mean, very easy to follow. They even come with pictures. And for someone like me who is not gifted in the kitchen when it comes to cooking, baking, different story, but for cooking, it is hell on earth for me. So to even have pictures and visuals to go with the recipe and the menu, the little recipe menu is all laminated and smooth and clean. It's amazing. 
oh my God, is it a game changer for my incompetent ass in the kitchen. And they've got everything for whatever you need to stay cozy. They've got limited time recipes that offer twists on the classics like beef tenderloin and cheese fondue or miso sesame shrimp and bacon ramen. So if you wanna get started with HelloFresh, make sure you go to hellofresh.com slash casket16 and use code casket16 for up to 16 free meals and three free gifts. That's up to 16 free meals and three free gifts at hellofresh.com slash casket16 and use code casket16. And of course, when it's cold outside, the weather is miserable, going outside doesn't seem very fun. And sometimes when you have to go get groceries, maybe you're just hungry and don't wanna cook, it's even more miserable. But thankfully, DoorDash can help you out with that. It doesn't matter if you just want takeout from your favorite place, or maybe you forgot an item at the grocery store you really, really need, or just want some late night cookies or snacks, DoorDash can grab that for you. Or if you're like me and you just got your HelloFresh box like I just did the other day, and you notice that they have a little bit of garlic in one of your items, but you are a garlic girl, if you feel me, garlic, like one little bubble garlic, that's not gonna do it in this household. And uh, my goofy ass while I was at the grocery store forgot to go get garlic. So I had to DoorDash garlic and I got a nice, big, delicious, I don't wanna say how many I got, but I got, more than two. And I feel really guilty. I don't know why I'm like, I'm feeling very guilty about this right now, but I bought many garlics and they were delivered and they were delicious. My house smells incredible right now. But the point is DoorDash can help you out if you forget an important ingredient like garlic. Very important, don't forget it like I did. And ordering is super easy and everything is left safely outside your door when you choose contactless delivery drop-off. So for a limited time, our listeners can get 25% off and zero delivery fees on their first order of $15 or more when you download the DoorDash app and enter code CASKET. That's 25% off up to a $10 value and zero delivery fees on your first order when you download the DoorDash app in the app store and enter code CASKET. Don't forget that's code CASKET for 25% off your first order with DoorDash. Subject to change, terms apply. Between January 1st, 2012 and September 17th, 2014, 15 players in the NFL were arrested for violence against women, including charges of domestic violence, battery, and assault. Breaking news with former NFL player Zach Stacy waking up in the Orange County Jail this morning. Becker's career has been unraveling since arrest for domestic violence in Tampa cost him his job. In the-, the handling of domestic violence committed by players in the NFL came into the limelight in 2014 with domestic abuse charges against Ray Rice. Originally, Ray Rice and his then fiance were both arrested after what the police department called a domestic dispute. Rice's lawyer described the incident as a very minor physical altercation, and Chad Steele, who was the Ravens' director of public relations said, "'We are aware of the Friday night situation with Ray Rice and his fiance. We have spoken with Ray and know that they have returned home together after being detained. For the time being, and for a few months following, that's all the public knew. While I don't believe there's really such a thing as a minor physical altercation, the NFL did not seem too concerned about the event. Only a few days after Rice's arrest, TMZ released a disturbing video of Rice dragging Palmer out of an elevator. And in that video, she seemed to be unconscious. The police said they had also obtained a video that showed him punching her and knocking her out, but they did not release that to the public. Despite this, the Ravens organization came out to defend Rice. The owner, Steve Bischiotti said, "'He's just been lauded as the nicest, hardest working, greatest guy on the team and in the community. So we have to support him.' 
I think we'll be rewarded by him maturing and never putting himself in a situation like that again. I've been on record of saying my definition of character is repeating offenses. If we're all one strike and you're out, then we're all in trouble. It's how you respond to adversity. And um, I don't think I really need to go too in depth as to why that's probably not what you should have said. That is one of the weirdest, uncomfortable and gross things that an owner could have said. And he said it. It's just ick. Now, following an incredibly and honestly, a very suspiciously timed sudden marriage between Rice and Palmer and a meeting with Roger Goodall, the commissioner of the NFL and Ravens head executives, Ray Rice received a penalty of a two game suspension. That's it, just two games. Though there's little consensus as to what was said in those meetings, multiple sources reported that Ray's new wife stood up for him in his football career. And she and Rice spun a story that the event was not as bad as it seemed. And it was the only time anything like that ever happened. Perhaps not surprisingly, the public immediately responded to the decision of suspending someone accusing of knocking his wife unconscious for only two games with shock and anger. Only a short time after, Goodall responded to the critiques by stating that he didn't get it right in the case with Rice. Goodall said, I take full responsibility both for the decision and for ensuring that our actions in the future properly reflect our values. I didn't get it right. Simply put, we have to do better and we will. The letter went on to outline stricter penalties for domestic violence in the NFL, including six game suspension without pay for the first offense and a lifetime ban for the second. The charges against Rice were also dismissed after he completed an intervention program. Now you would hope that this would be the end of the day for Ray Rice, but unfortunately it wasn't. About a month after Goodall announced the changes to the NFL's domestic violence policy, a new video of the assault was leaked by TMZ. And this new video was the shocking video that was already seen by the police. The video showed Rice hitting his wife, allegedly spitting on her and screaming. The video shocked the public and was allegedly shocking to the Ravens and the NFL as well, though there's some debate on that. Almost immediately after the video's release that very same day, Rice was released from the Ravens and suspended from the NFL. Both the Ravens coaches and Roger Goodall claimed they had not seen this video before it was released to the public by TMZ. In a press conference, Goodall said, we had not seen any videotape of what occurred in the elevator. We assumed that there was a video. We asked for a video. We asked for anything that was pertinent, but we were never granted that opportunity. The Ravens owner, Steve Bischiotti, issued a letter that read in part, Yesterday morning, September 8th, all of us saw the video from inside the elevator. It was violent and horrifying. I immediately came to the office and called a meeting with Dick Cass, Ozzie Newsome, John Harbaugh, and Kevin Bryne. The meeting was relatively short. The decision to let Ray Rice go was unanimous. Seeing the video changed everything. We should have seen it earlier. We should have pursued our own investigation more vigorously. We didn't and we are wrong. Despite this, the Associated Press released a report contradicting these claims and alleged that the NFL had received the video prior to their decision in April to suspend Rice for two games. The NFL has denied this and again assured the public that if they had seen the video, Rice would have received different treatment. But unfortunately, we will never know the truth. In the end, Rice would never play another game in the NFL and now give speeches of his story to football rookies while the NFL continuously claims they have fixed their domestic violence policy. But did they? In 2014, the NFL Players Association started a commission to study domestic violence within the league and make recommendations. However, four years later, two members of the panel quit. Deborah Epstein, a Georgetown University law professor wrote in an op-ed for the Washington Post. 
When I was asked to join the commission, I told NFLPA Executive Director DeMaurice Smith that I was leery of associating with an organization that might just be paying lip service to the defining issue of my career so that in essence, the NFLPA could say it was confronting domestic violence abuses so long for the Rice story to fall out of the news cycle. Smith assured me repeatedly that this commission would be a serious working group and that our efforts would help produce necessary reforms. But clearly this has not been the case. Then in 2018, the Ravens encountered another issue with domestic violence and more public criticism when they decided to keep Jimmy Smith, who had been suspended for being emotionally abusive and exhibiting threatening behavior towards the mother of his son. A study conducted by the University of Arkansas found that from 2010 to 2019, the National Football League did not follow its own personal conduct policy in punishing players who committed violent acts, including violence against women. Despite changing some rules and regulations when someone is arrested for domestic assault and introducing new programs that discuss violence against women with the players, the NFL still has some persisting issues. To be fair, they have definitely made at least some progress where there had been really none before the Ray Rice incident. However, multiple players have been drafted after sexual assault or domestic violence arrests and accusations. Some players have simply switched teams and there seems to be some issues within the task force itself. But unfortunately, these are not the only issues within one of the most famous sports leagues in the world. I have discussed CTE briefly in the episode about the WWE, but CTE has also become one of the biggest issues discussed in the NFL. Pardon my pronunciation on this, but CTE or chronic traumatic encephalopathy has been a known disease that was primarily thought to only affect boxers since the sun 1920s. However, in the early 2000s, when multiple famous football players passed away in quick succession, this belief quickly began to change. In 2002, Mike Webster, a Hall of Fame football player, became the first NFL player to be discovered to have CTE. But this discovery was not immediately brought to light and did not impact the NFL. Instead, the disease became national news five years later after Andre Waters committed suicide. Dr. Bennett Omalu, who worked for the University of Pittsburgh at the time, was considered a leader in forensic pathology. When he examined Waters' brain after his death, he found that Waters, who was only 44 years old at the time, had brain tissue similar to that of an 85-year-old with early stage Alzheimer's. He attributed this largely to Waters' multiple concussions he had that he sustained while playing football. In 1994, after his retirement, Waters told the Philadelphia Inquirer that he had lost count of his concussions sustained while playing in the league at 15 and said, I wouldn't say anything. I just sniff some smelling salts and then go back in there. Waters also sustained a horrific concussion during a game in 1991 that he had to be hospitalized after experiencing a seizure-like episode on a plane. The seizure-like episode was diagnosed as body cramps and he played the following week. At this time, the NFL refused to comment on Waters' individual case, but Dr. Andrew Tucker, who was a member of the NFL's Mild Traumatic Brain Injury Committee, did say that the NFL was planning to start a study of retired football players to examine general issues of football concussions and subsequent depression. Now, this should probably be the first red flag because if you're starting a study, that might mean you have an inkling that there is a problem. But the NFL repeatedly denied that football was connected to brain trauma later in life. Andre Waters' brain was shipped to Dr. Omalu at the suggestion of Christopher Nowinski. We mentioned him in our WWE episode as well. Christopher had become one of the leading advocates for brain research for football players and wrestlers. And when he heard of Waters' death, he immediately called the family to request they donate his brain to research. After some convincing, they agreed, and pieces of his brain were shipped to Dr. Omalu, who had already studied two other football players' brains, including Mike Webster and Terry Long. Unfortunately, this was just the beginning in the discovery of how pervasive brain damage was in the NFL. 
Over the years, more than 315 former NFL players have been found to have CTE, with 24 of those people being in their 20s or 30s when they died. CTE had been divided into four different stages of varying degrees. The first stage is associated with slight memory loss. The second stage is associated with frontal lobe damage, which causes issues of concentration, cognition issues, and impulse control. In stage three, the symptoms can include impulsivity, violence, paranoia, and the erosion of memory. Lastly, stage four is common with a diagnosis of dementia. Despite the continuous stream of scientific evidence showing the link between the NFL and excessive brain damage, the NFL continuously denied any responsibility. This and the growing fear among current and retired football players that playing in the league could affect their brains forever led to an onslaught of lawsuits and legal battles in the coming years. The first lawsuit against the NFL was filed by Ray Easterling in 2011. After retiring from the NFL, Easterling had been suffering from depression and insomnia. He had been diagnosed with dementia in 2011 and at just 67 years old. His wife, Marianne Easterling, said that her husband had been feeling more and more pain. He felt like his brain was falling off. He was losing control. He couldn't remember things from five minutes ago. It was frightening, especially somebody who had all the plays memorized as a player when he stepped onto the field. While Ray was the first to file a lawsuit against the league, he was soon joined by 4,500 other former players. Unfortunately, Easterling committed suicide less than one year later before a settlement could be reached with the league. While the lawsuit continued, lawyers accused the NFL of hiding the connection between playing football and brain damage later in life. The Mild Traumatic Brain Injury Committee created in 1994 was originally established as a gesture to former players and a promise that the NFL would take researching concussions and brain injuries seriously. However, that's not what they did. Instead, the committee continuously denied claims that playing football was linked to CTE. Dr. Ira Kassin had argued in January, 2010, that there is not enough valid, reliable, or objective scientific evidence at present to determine whether or not repeated head impacts in professional football results in long-term brain damage. But later that year, the league did mandate all teams to place a poster about concussions in their locker rooms and change the rules to ban helmet-on-helmet contact. Even though the ban on helmet-on-helmet contact may help reduce the likelihood of concussions, it's important to remember that CTE does not occur just from concussions. It doesn't even occur from just hits to the head. CTE is the result of your brain moving around in the skull and any hard hit can cause this to happen. Finally, in 2013, the NFL reached a tentative settlement of $765 million. The settlement included an agreement by the league to compensate former players, pay for medical exams, and complete research. However, the settlement distinctly says that the NFL does not accept liability or admit that substantial brain damage had been caused by football. In the end, the settlement reached by the players in the NFL came out to $1 billion, but the NFL never assumed liability. Despite the $1 billion settlement, the cases of CTE in former players continued to grow and have led to some disastrous and heartbreaking stories. One of the most famous cases being Aaron Hernandez. Now, let me premise this by saying that Aaron Hernandez's actions and death could have been contributed by many different factors. But when his extremely severe case of CTE was discovered, you can't help but wonder how this may have turned out differently if he had never played football. Anyway, Aaron Hernandez in 2012 and early 2013 was considered to be one of the best football players in the country, playing for what some would consider one of the best teams in the NFL, the New England Patriots. That all came crashing down in 2013 when he was accused of killing Odin Lloyd. Hernandez quickly lost his $40 million contract with the Patriots. Then in 2015, he was convicted and sentenced to life in prison. 
Soon after, Hernandez faced trial again, accused of killing Danielle de Abreu and Safiro Furtado in 2012. He was acquitted. Four days later, Hernandez killed himself while in prison and left behind letters. Aaron Hernandez was only 27 years old when he died, drastically younger than many other players who had been discovered to be suffering from CTE after their deaths. His brain had been studied by Dr. McKee from Boston University. In a stunning and shocking press conference, McKee described the extent of the disease Hernandez had been suffering. It was discovered that he had stage three CTE, which previously had never been discovered in anyone younger than 46 years old. As new slides were shown to the audience, they gasped. Hernandez's brain was dramatically different compared to an average 27 year old. There was a visible gap throughout, particularly in the frontal lobe, which controls decision-making and behavior. Dr. McKee said that the discoveries found when they first started analyzing Hernandez's brain were very unusual findings for an individual of his age. And that the research team had never seen this in our 468 brains, except in individuals some 20 years older. In any individual, we can't take the pathology and explain the behavior, but we can say collectively in our collective experience uh, that individuals with CTE and CTE of this severity have difficulty with impulse control. The estate of Aaron Hernandez filed a federal lawsuit against the New England Patriots organization and the NFL for $20 million. The lawsuit claims that the team and the league were fully aware of the damage that could be inflicted from repetitive impact injuries and failed to disclose, treat, or protect him from the dangers of such damage. The lawsuit goes on to say that he had succumbed to the symptoms of CTE. As a result of the defendant's conduct, the NFL and Patriots, and the injury experienced by Aaron, Aviel Hernandez was deprived of the love, affection, society, and companionship of her father while he was alive. This lawsuit was ultimately dismissed due to the technicality of the 2014 settlement. As I said, some other things could have contributed to this horrific tragedy. Aaron Hernandez had a difficult upbringing and that could have led to this. However, the fact remains that he to this day had the worst case of CTE discovered in a person in his age and football without a doubt contributed to that. Dr. McKee was also responsible for studying another player's brain after another tragedy in April of 2021. Philip Adams was accused of killing six people, including a physician, his wife, two of his grandchildren, and two people working in his home before killing himself. Adams was only 32 years old when he died and had played six seasons in the NFL. He was diagnosed with stage two of CTE and Dr. McKee said that his 20 years of playing football in high school, college, and then the NFL definitely gave rise to the disease. Like Hernandez, Adams's damage to his frontal lobe was unusually severe for how young he was. In a prepared statement from the family, they said they were shocked to learn the severity of the condition, but not surprised that he had been diagnosed with CTE. The statement also says, after going through medical records from his football career, we do know that he was desperately seeking help from the NFL, but was denied all claims due to his inability to remember things and to handle simple tasks, such as traveling hours away to see doctors and going through extensive evaluations. So while the NFL may say they're doing everything they can, if this statement is to be believed clearly, they are not. That very same year, the NFL was sued by two former players for using racially biased testing when conducting their examinations for the payouts of the $1 billion settlement they reached for players in 2014. Two retired players, Kevin Henry and Naja Davenport filed a civil suit against the NFL accusing the league of explicitly and deliberately discriminating against black players in their dementia testing. Though a judge did dismiss the case, it did spark some national attention on how exactly the NFL was conducting their dementia testing. As it turns out, the NFL had been using two different tests, one for black players and one for everybody else. 
This type of scoring system had been developed by neurologists in the 1990s and apparently factored in a patient's socioeconomic background. I feel fairly confident that I don't have to explain to this audience why giving two tests, one to a black person and one to a white person as a way to factor in socioeconomic background is problematic. Additionally, the NFL was using race norming, which assumes black players start with lower cognitive function. Once again, I don't feel I need to explain what's wrong with that. It's pretty fucking obvious. But beyond the clear problems with the way the NFL was testing by that, what made it worse was that the NFL was using these tests to determine if players were entitled to a payout after suffering from dementia and other traumatic brain injuries. These tests made it increasingly difficult for black players to receive any form of compensation from the NFL for their suffering. It was discovered that the NFL could appeal payouts that had been awarded to black men if the doctors had conducted the test without the racial adjustment. Despite this, the NFL claimed that this testing was not discriminatory and said that no off-the-shelf alternative exists. The league were not the only people in hot water over this race-based testing, but the lawyer, Christopher Seagar, who worked with over 20,000 players also faced some of the blame. Players accused Seagar of knowing about the race-based test since 2018 and doing nothing to draw attention to it or address it. He released a statement saying, I'm sorry for the pain this episode has caused black former players and their families. Ultimately, this settlement only works if former players believe in it. And my goal is to regain their trust and ensure the NFL is fully held to account. The NFL finally promised that it would stop racially biased testing in October, 2021. But unfortunately at this point, we don't know exactly how much the testing has impacted players' ability to receive payoffs because perhaps not so shockingly, the NFL has not released any type of racial demographic data on their settlement claims. According to the New York Times, more than 7,000 former players took free neuropsychological and neurological exams offered in the settlement. Some of them were told they did not have dementia and might be unaware of how their exams are scored. The lawyer that first brought the case with Henry and Davenport estimated that white players' dementia claims were being approved at two to three times the rate of those of black players. But as I said, we can't be sure if this is true because of the lack of records. However, since the racially based testing definitely impacted how black players were scored in comparison to white players, it would not be all that surprising if this turned out to be true. Unfortunately, this is also not the first time the NFL has gotten in hot water because of racially insensitive, biased, or just plain racist actions, systems, or statements. Colin Kaepernick, 49ers quarterback knelt instead of standing during the national anthem at last night's game. He was not alone. Colin Kaepernick's teammates joined him in taking a knee, and a Seattle Seahawks player also didn't stand for their national anthem. But this morning, Kaepernick says he's willing to make real change and plans on donating- Now, I'm sure you didn't assume that I was gonna finish the very first of an NFL script and not talk about Colin Kaepernick, did you? In 2016, after having an up and down history with the NFL, Colin Kaepernick was playing for the San Francisco 49ers. Kaepernick actually sat on the bench two times during the national anthem before it was noticed or addressed by the public. The third time Kaepernick's protest finally started to make some waves. After the game, he explained to the media why he was sitting during the national anthem. And he said, I am not going to stand up to show pride in a flag for a country that oppresses black people and people of color. To me, this is bigger than football and it would be selfish on my part to look the other way. There are bodies in the street and people getting paid leave and getting away with murder. In short, Kaepernick was protesting police brutality and racial injustices in the United States. I mean, ultimately it's to bring awareness and make people know, realize what's really going on in this country. There are a lot of things that are going on that are unjust, people aren't being held accountable for. And that's something that needs to change. That's something that 
You know, this country stands for freedom, liberty, justice for all. And it's not happening for all right now. Kaepernick was joined in the protest by Eric Reed. He decided to kneel rather than sit after a conversation with Nate Boyer, who was a former Green Beret. Nate said, we came to the sort of middle ground where he would take a knee alongside his teammates. Soldiers take a knee in front of a fallen brother's grave, you know, to show respect. This part always seems to be left out of the conversation, but it is definitely worth mentioning that Kaepernick went from sitting to taking a knee as a sign of respect to soldiers while simultaneously continuing his protest. But as I said, this is something that often people or certain media outlets like to forget. And Kaepernick faced an onslaught of criticism from people saying his protest was disrespectful to active members and veterans of the American military. He continued his protest throughout the 2016 season and was eventually joined by other players. But when the season came to an end, he opted out of a contract with the 49ers and remained unsigned. He hasn't played a game since. In 2017, it was reported that two teams were interested in signing him, but allegedly backed off after hearing from some fans. The accusations that Kaepernick had been blackballed from the NFL became widespread in public speculation. Despite him leaving the league or being blackballed, whichever you believe, many players continued to protest throughout the 2017 season to the dismay of millions of fans, including then president Donald Trump. By May of 2018, the NFL owners, after multiple meetings decided they had enough of these protests. They decided to implement a policy that made players subject to punishment if they chose to kneel and instead had to wait in the locker room if they chose to protest, which isn't much of a protest. The Players Association quickly filed a grievance for the policy and it was put on hold. Fast forward to the murder of George Floyd. Good evening, everyone. We're coming on the air with the latest on the wave of protests and uh, unrest taking place at this hour across the country. Outrage at the death of George Floyd, an African-American man while in police custody. In city after American city tonight, thousands of people have once again taken to the streets to express their anger, frustration, and solidarity with others among them with different agendas seeking to perhaps hijack the demonstration. The NFL, like many other organizations, were forced to come face-to-face with their issues regarding race. Goodall released a video where he said the league was wrong in silencing our players for peaceful protesting but he never addresses Kaepernick directly in the video. Then later in an interview, Goodall told Emmanuel Ocho when he asked what he would say to Kaepernick that, the first thing I'd say is that I wish we had listened earlier, Cap, to what you were kneeling about and what you were trying to bring attention to. While the video and the interviews were heartwarming, it does seem important to mention that these conversations were happening at the same time that the NFL was using racially biased testing while the NFL was and still is facing criticism for the lack of black individuals in high status positions, like a head coach or owner. In a league that is overwhelmingly comprised of black players, over 70%, there have always been a shortage of black head coaches and there are no black owners and only two owners of color. The NFL developed a rule called the Rooney Rule. The Rooney Rule requires teams to interview at least one coach of color from an opposing team when coaching positions become available. The intention is that this would cause teams to hire more coaches of color, But unfortunately, that doesn't seem to be the case over the years. The 2021 season started with only five coaches of color and only three black coaches. However, by the end of the season, two of those three black coaches were fired, leaving only one. In a league with 32 teams, this definitely seems like a systemic issue. The executive vice president of football operations, Troy Vincent, told the Washington Post that there was a double standard when it came to the NFL or collegiate teams firing black coaches after short tenures. Vincent told the Washington Post, there is a double standard. I don't think that is something we should shy away from, but that is all part of some of the things we need to fix in the system. We want to hold everyone to why does one person, let's say, get the benefit of the doubt to be able to build or take bumps and bruises in this process of getting a franchise turned around when others are not afforded that latitude. 
What he was saying here is that there seems to be an issue in the NFL and even the collegiate level of football coaches of color getting fired while rebuilding teams, while other coaches are given multiple chances to build, lose, and change before they're let go. Though the NFL has put efforts to diversify the league's high priority positions, it hasn't seemed to work out the way they planned, which Goodall himself has admitted. Right before we were finishing and putting the final touches on this episode, yet another lawsuit has come out against the NFL, filed by Brian Flores, who has been fired by the NFL Dolphins. We are delighted now to be joined by Brian Flores, who was the head coach of the Miami Dolphins for the last several years, who was released last month and has filed, as of yesterday, a lawsuit against the National Football League about its hiring practices. What was the tipping point for you through your experiences that made you feel this was something you needed to do? You know, I've been on you know, several interviews over the years, and we didn't have to file a lawsuit for, for the world to know that there's an, an issue from a hiring and firing practices so in the National Football League. Why did that, that's um, correct. A lot of people just, yeah. have pointed this out. So why did you feel- The lawsuit claims that there is racial bias in the coaching search and selection in the NFL. Now there is a lot more to this. So like I said, I'll stay updated on it and I will be talking about it further in an upcoming follow-up episode. But again, this is just another example of the alleged racial discrimination within the NFL. The NFL is without a doubt one of the biggest cultural phenomena in the United States and football is beloved by millions of people. There is no doubt that they provide entertainment. And of course, the time spent watching football with family and friends is something cherished by a wide range of fans. However, there are certainly a few things the league needs to address more thoroughly moving forward. So the joy felt by the fans isn't overshadowed by the scandals of the league. Like we said at the beginning, there's a lot to cover in the NFL, so we'll most likely be doing a follow-up. So please let us know what we may have missed or what you would like to see covered. I know things like Michael Vick or more details on sexual assault within the NFL are things that are most certainly on the table already. But with that being said, that's where I'm going to end today's episode of The Corporate Casket. If you learned something new here today, make sure you're liking, following, and subscribing so you can stay up to date on all the latest episodes. And just remember that this Sunday is Super Bowl weekend. So just kind of keep this in the back of your mind while many people are going to celebrate the Super Bowl Sunday and enjoy that day that maybe those players playing are really not in the best of positions. Just keep that in mind this Super Bowl Sunday. That's all. I'll see you in the next episode. Bye.